Good morning. We're back in our, uh, if you've been with us the past couple of weeks, we're in a series called, we're just calling it Walking with Jesus. And what we're doing is we're just spending some time walking through uh, really the very early part of Jesus's ministry. We're not just in one of the Gospels, but what we've been doing is taking pretty much a, a chronological look. Not, not completely, but pretty close. And that's what we've been doing is really stepping through where he goes and what he was saying right at the beginning of his ministry. And as I was thinking about this particular sermon and just kind of what we're doing each week when we open uh, God's word and we look at what Jesus said and where he went and what he did. I was reminded of a time uh, when I was in college in undergraduate. Uh, my undergraduate degree was in architecture. And uh, when I was in school, my senior year, uh, it, I went to Texas A&M and my senior year there at A&M, uh, Philip Johnson, who is, if you don't know who Philip Johnson is, that's okay. But he's, he's one of the most famous architects in the world. And uh, when he was there, um, he was 89 years old, I think, when I was in school, uh, late 80s. And he had done all this great stuff, and you study all his buildings and all this stuff. And he had come to A&M because he was going to design a building for the, for the school. And I remember he came to some of the classes to do critiques, where he'd come and he'd look at student work and he'd give his opinion. And I remember everybody heard he was going to be there and running up to the third floor where he was. And all these people are crammed in there to hear this, this master, Philip Johnson, and what he would say and what he was doing and, and giving his opinions. And as I was thinking about that, um, how excited you were to hear what Philip Johnson had to say about architecture, that uh, when we do this, when we open God's word and we look at where Jesus went and what he said, what we're seeing is what God's like. What we're seeing is what God cares about. And when we, when we walk through this and we're seeing what Jesus did and where he went and where he said, are we that excited? You know, I was thinking about how excited you are to hear about an architect, you know, top of their profession speaking about their thing. Are we that excited to see what Jesus has to say to us as we look at his words and where he went and what he did. Because what we're seeing is when we look at this and we open it and we walk with Jesus in this. And we're looking at where he went and what he was doing. As Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the exact representation of God. That when he opens his mouth, um, or as John says in John 1, the word became flesh. God steps into the story. And what we see as we do this, as we open God's word and we see where Jesus went and what he cared about and what he said and how he spent his time as we are seeing God revealed to us and how he moved about on earth and what he did and what he said. And that is so huge when you start to think about that and what that means. And I just say that this morning. So that's kind of above and over everything we're doing in this series that what we're looking at is we're really kind of asking the question is, and what we're seeing is, is uh, what does God care about and what is he like? And we get these answers as we walk and we see what Jesus is doing. Now, last week we spent the beginning. Uh, we, we looked at the beginning of John chapter two, and we're going to be in John chapter two again. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there with us, we're going to be in John chapter two. And last week we talked about uh, in John chapter two, um, Jesus goes to a wedding feast and he turns the water to wine. And, and what we saw, just big idea, um, you know, that Jesus is giving the sign and he's providing and he's meeting a need and all of it points to him and what he's come to do. But at the same time, we saw Jesus kind of doing this in the background. Not a lot of people knew what he was doing. He wasn't making a big deal. He just went and he did it and he worked. This week, when we look at the second half of John 2, it's very different. It's very public. 
It's very uh, grandiose what he does. He goes into the temple and he gets upset. And we're going to see that this morning. And it's a very different. And it's interesting how John puts those two things side by side. Jesus working behind the scenes and meeting needs and then going straight to the heart of uh, the cultural, the worship center where he was in his culture. And he speaks out. So just a very different look today. And we're going to see that. And I want us to be thinking about um, this kind of public outburst of Jesus Why is he acting this way? What does that tell us about God as we work our way through this passage? So if you look with me, I'm going to read John 2 verses 13 to 25. And that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. And beginning in verse 13, it says this, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drew, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned the tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray, and then we're going to look at those, uh, that passage together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. I pray this morning that we'd be faithful to what it says. I pray that you would help us to, uh, your Holy Spirit would come and open our eyes, help us to understand, to see it clearly, to see uh, things the way you see them. I pray that you would uh, enlighten us, you would open our eyes, that we would leave here uh, seeing more clearly what you have for us and who you are and what you want us to be about. And uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So as we begin this morning, right, with what the fullness of God is showing us through Jesus, there's a few questions I want us to ask of the, uh, of the uh, passage. And uh, three questions. We always start like that. We, ask, we often ask three questions. We start that way, and we want the answers to come from the text. And the three questions we're going to look at is this. What is the problem here? And we're going to see there's actually a couple of them. There's a couple of problems. But what are the problems here? How does Jesus respond? And then what, is it, what does it teach us today? What does it tell us about God? And what does that teach us today? Today. So let's begin with what is the problem here? What's the problem that Jesus, that what we see is this kind of outburst here. And what's the problem that brings this on? So if you look at me in verses 14 and 16, 14 through 16, what we're going to see, and I want you to think about it this way as we look at kind of the problem of what Jesus is seeing. There's a surface problem, what he sees, what he walks in and visibly sees, but then there's the deeper problem, the heart problem that's underneath that. 
So let's start kind of with just what he sees, the surface problem. And in verses 14 through 16, it says, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. And he made a whip of cords and he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins on the table and the money changers and overturned the table. So what we see, the, the, the surface problem, Jesus comes into the temple courts. He walks into this place that's been set aside for worship. It's the place that God said, this is how you come to me. This is how I've set up my drawing towards me where you come for true worship. And Jesus walks in and what he sees is a marketplace. There's animals and there's money changers and there's a business going on. And when you think about that picture, you know, there's a great big outer courtyard and that's where this is taking place. And he walks in. I want you to think about what that sounds like what it looks like, what it smells like. You've got animals there. You've got all these things going on, and it upsets Jesus greatly. And what you see is that, he, that he's frustrated. On the surface, he sees that they've turned the courtyard, the place of worship, into a marketplace. And uh, as we think about that and what he sees and what the problem there, it's not even so much what they're doing. Yes, it's not good. There's the, the commerce in the marketplace, but it's more... Uh, how they're doing it and where they're doing it. Because when you go back and you look through um, uh, ancient literature and we, we find and we know that uh, they used to do this. They had money changers and they would sell sacrifices and they would do all this, but it used to take place outside of the courtyard. It was outside. And the reason they had it is people came all over. It tells us in uh, verse 13 for Passover and they'd come from all over. And what would happen is people would travel big distances and they couldn't bring animals for sacrifices. So they'd get there and they'd go and they'd do the money exchange and then they'd buy their animals and they'd do all this to come in to sacrifice. But over time, it had gotten closer and closer to the temple to eventually they actually moved it into the temple courts. So it wasn't so much what they were doing, but it's where they were doing it. Right? They've actually brought it into this place of worship. And what we know from the way the, the temple was set up and what happened there is they not only brought it into the place of worship, but they brought it into the outer court, which was the Gentile court. Those who are not Jewish, but were what we call God fears. That is, they feared God and they wanted to know about the one true God of Israel. They would come and they could come in the outer courts. Well, that's where they were selling stuff. Right? That's where they had set up and started selling stuff. The only place that this group of people could go. So not only are they now... Uh, making it into a marketplace, but they're keeping people from actually worshiping. They're, they're physically keeping them out and they're, they're pushing them to the side and all this stuff is going on. And that's kind of the surface, what we see. Jesus is not happy about this at all. And that's kind of what he sees as he walks in. But then I want us to start to think about what, what is the heart under that, right? Why is it that Jesus is so angry and what happens and what he's seeing and what he's thinking? And in verse 18, it starts to reveal the heart of those that set this up, right? Because Jesus comes in and he starts doing this and he says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And then in verse 18, it says, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Right? And I say that that starts to reveal the heart of the people um, that are doing it, that have set this up. And the reason I say that is here, Jesus has very good reason for what he's doing, right? They, they've, they've made it into commerce and they're, they're keeping people from worship and all these things. But the answer comes back, who are you to tell us what to do? That's basically what they're saying. 
And what you see, and it starts to reveal the heart condition of those involved that have, have set this up and let this grow into this, they don't really care about, they don't care about asking the question, are we doing the right thing? Is this right? It's just suddenly, who are you to tell us? It's a very defensive position. Now, here's, here's the interesting thing. I say, uh, we look at this and we say, this starts to reveal the heart condition with this interaction here. But Jesus comes in and he's already very upset and he doesn't wait to figure this out. He doesn't question them and then go about driving them out and doing these things. He goes straight to it. Seems the, the chronology here seems out of place. Jesus goes right to it. He's already discerned what the heart condition is behind that. And if you look at verse 24, it tells us, it gives us some insight into that, why Jesus goes in there already knowing what they're thinking and the way they are and what their heart condition is. And in verse 24, it says, Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And in verse 25, he says he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So I want you to get this picture. Right? Jesus walks into the courtyard and all this stuff is going on and all the craziness that's around. But he doesn't just see what's on the surface. He sees the heart condition of each person there. He sees what's underneath it. He sees what's the root of the problem here. And that, that starts to inform his outburst here and the way he comes at it, that we see that. Now, we, we don't know that. No one else knows that around. We have to kind of discern from what the passage says what their heart condition is. And I say that in verse 18, that starts to open that up, what the heart condition is, because they say, who are you to tell us? And you may say, well, how does, how does that help us? How does that help us show what the heart condition of the people who were there are? They asked for a sign. Now, in John, uh, it's later on in John chapter 6, this happens again. And they come to Jesus and they say, uh, I'm sorry, it's in a, it's a Matthew chapter 12. Got, got my references mixed up. In Matthew 12, this happens. Right? Jesus goes and the, they get upset at him. And some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So why does Jesus say, same thing they're doing here. I'm saying this, this reveals their heart. They say, we want a sign. Who are you to tell us? And then Jesus says later in Matthew 12 that it's an evil and adulterous generation that asks for a sign. So what's going on here? Why is he so harsh and so right to the point with them. And I think the reality of what's happening here is when they say that, when Jesus comes in and he says, you need to get all this out. And they say, who are you? It's a ploy. It's a redirect. Look over here. Let's make this about you and who you are. How dare you say that to us? They, they quickly go, no, no, no. It, let's talk about you. And it's, um, it's almost like a, uh, uh, righteous indignation, a false righteous. How dare you question me like that? You know, I was thinking uh, it, it, it reminds me of, I, for whatever reason, one of my favorite shows for you know, my adult life has been Law and Order. I used to watch that all the time. And if you've ever seen Law and Order, if you've seen one, you've pretty much seen them all. They're all kind of the same. You know, they start the same and they do the same. But it's a cops and robbers show and there's a crime and then they figure it out. But probably every second or third episode, the same scene happens over and over in it. And it always happens like this. The guy says um, they find their, their main suspect and they're like, this is the guy. We know it's him. And then they either go to search his house or they go and they ask for a DNA sample. 
And the guy says, how dare you? How dare you ask me? I will not dignify that was a response. And I won't give you my DNA and I won't let you do, you know, and then, of course, they get them anyway in the end. But but what what that what they do is they make this. Oh, how dare you ask me? How dare? That's exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. Who are you? Give us a sign to prove to us that we should listen to you. And they don't even listen to what he's saying. They don't stop to consider that maybe Jesus has a point. Maybe this has gotten out of hand. Instead, they jump straight to the defensive. Who are you? And that's why Jesus gets um, uh, the kind of the harshness when he says in Matthew 12 about the uh, evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Because they're not really seeking the truth. They want to make it about something else. And so you see Jesus speaking to that, and that's really the root problem. They're trying to make it about other things. They put other things above God. They don't really care about seeking the truth. Who are you? They don't even want to ask the question. And you see really the same thing. We see the same problem. And we put these verses together this morning, the cleansing of the temple and the verses right after that John puts together because the same thing is really happening in verse 23. And if you look at verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. And then it says, but Jesus did not entrust himself and he saw through it. And what it's saying is, what it's telling us is there were those that said, oh, we believe in Jesus because of signs. They see signs and wonders and they go, ah, I kind of like this guy. I might be able to get something out of this deal, right? I'm going to make this about what I can get from him. So I'll go check him out. Now, it says here, and you may say, well, it says that many believed in his name. But when you read through the Gospel of John, there's belief and then there's belief. What I mean by that is there's times when it talks about those who believe, but it's a very surface belief. And they're believing because what they can get out of it. They're not believing for who Jesus is and what he came to do. And they're not bowing down to worship him. They're going, ah, I kind of like this guy because I might be able to get something out of him. But the reality, what we see with Jesus as he walks through and he sees this, is he can see right through all of it. Because it says there in verse 23 and 24, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. What it says is Jesus saw their hearts. And I think that's part of the anger you see when he comes into the temple courts because he sees not only what's happening on the surface, but he sees what's under the surface that's allowed this to happen. He sees the hearts that are at play. So that's the first part we see. They're putting all these things before God. They're trying to use God for their own benefit. Right? I'm trying to just use and take the parts I want, and Jesus sees right through it. So that's the problem. So how does Jesus respond? And if you look at verse 15, he says, it says, uh, He came in and he made a whip of cords, and he drove, drove them out of the temple, talking about the animals that were in the temple court. And then he poured out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. Basically, Jesus walked in and started throwing some stuff. He was upset, right? If, if somebody comes in and turns a table over, you're going to go, whoa, he's pretty upset about something. He's angry. And that's the way he responded. He was angry. He was upset. He was visibly upset. And sometimes we read that. We read a passage like that. And we just kind of, oh, that doesn't really fit. With Jesus, right? Jesus is the all loving. We think of we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus is the uh, blonde haired, blue eyed guy standing in the field and the children running to him and the hair's blowing, you know, the wind's blowing in his hair. And that's we go, oh, he's he's all loving and that's him. And he's just and then you hear here he goes into the courts and he flips over a table and he's angry 
And sometimes you go, well, how do those two go together? How does the loving, the all-loving, mild, meek Jesus go with the angry, turning table over Jesus? How do those go together? And sometimes we can be tempted to go, oh, well, that's, let's just downplay that. Let's move that over here. But I want us to stop and think about that for a second this morning because they're not at odds. They actually go perfectly together. And they're a perfect balance of who God is and the way he loves and the way he acts and the way he interacts with us. And I want us to think about why that is this morning. And I want you to consider when Jesus goes in there and what he is seeing, because what he's seeing is different than what you and I see when we're walking. Because he walks in and he sees people's hearts. He not only sees what's happening on the surface in the courts, he sees the hearts that are behind it. And it makes him angry. It makes him angry because he knows what's going on there. And he sees how far off they are from what God has designed and what he wants for us. Right? We talked about a couple of weeks ago that the first thing Jesus comes and he says the kingdom of God is at hand. And we talked about how that's saying that now I've come and I've announced that I'm here and I'm going to fix everything and I'm going to set it right and I'm going to show you how it will be. Well, he walks into the temple that's supposed to be the place of worship, the place where people find out about God and see who he is. And it's so far removed from what it's supposed to be. But not only that, he sees the hearts that are behind it. And he's infuriated. And sometimes we go, well, how does that go? Right? How does that go together? How does the anger go with that? And I want to uh, think of it this way this morning. Jesus has a, uh, a loving anger. And sometimes that's hard to, uh, for us to grasp, to get this idea of a, of a loving anger. And we can, uh, I want you to think about it this way, though. Uh, a relationship with someone, right? You have a relationship with someone and they're doing something that you know is destructive for themselves, right? Destructive behavior, whatever it may be. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a sinful uh, cycle they've fallen into. Maybe it's your good friend and you know he's thinking about cheating on his wife and it makes you angry, Right? It makes you angry, and the reason it makes you angry is because you love and care for that person, and you see where this is going to go. You can see how far off that's going to take them, and it's frustrating. But I want you to think about that, because if you weren't, um, sometimes we confuse the two. Well, if you're angry, then it can't be love, and it can't be, but that's not the truth. The reality is, if I didn't care, and I wasn't loving, it would be apathy, Right? If I see somebody doing something that I know is destructive and I don't really care, I'm like, oh, well, good luck with that. And you just kind of let them go. When it makes me angry, it's because I care. It's not in spite of, of love. It's because of your love that you get upset. I'll give you an example. It happens all the time at my house. Uh, my little boy, Jed, gets into everything and he wants to do and he's Mr. Independent and all. And he goes and he reaches on the counter sometimes and tries to get, you know. And there's been times where I stop him and I tell him, you cannot do that because that's heavy. It could fall on you. It could hurt you. And he goes, eh, you know, two minutes later, he's back doing it again. And sometimes it, you get angry. And I, and I really thought about this the other day. There's times when I'm not, there's times when I'm angry at him. Let's, I'll be honest. There's times when you get frustrated with him and you're, but there's times when you're angry because you see what could happen and your anger is, is really at his disobedience because you see what his disobedience will cause if you let it go on. And you can see how he could really hurt himself in that case. 
And that's, that's kind of what we get when I talk about this loving anger that God has. Jesus walks in and sees what's happening at the heart level. He sees how destructive and how off things are and what it's causing. And he can see it for what it is and it causes this, this holy anger because he knows and he sees it completely. And the hard part is sometimes when we start to, to make that connection with ourselves and we, what we do is, is we take human attributes and we try to put them on God so we can understand him better because of our, he's so far above us in our finite mind, so we try to make it, and then we think, oh, well, the anger that's on, uh, that's kind of like my anger, and we mix it up with the way I would be, which the way I would be is I would be petty in my anger, and I might be frustrated, and I might do... Jesus isn't that way. Because he is perfectly good, and he's perfectly holy, he is God in human form, he sees it for exactly how it is. He sees it completely and purely. Um, sometimes when we do communion, we do a reading from Isaiah 53, and we talk about how um, it's in Isaiah 53, and it says he's a man of sorrows. And when you see Jesus walking and you see the way he went and the way he would weep and the way he would feel and he felt so deeply, the reality is Jesus is the only person who ever walked on the earth that wasn't self-absorbed. He sees everything as it is and sees people where they are, and he's not so caught up in who I am and what I'm doing. and what He sees it that way. He sees it completely and purely. So when he gets frustrated or sad or angry, it's because he sees it as it is. You follow that. You see how huge that is. And so when he walks into the temple courts and he sees what they're doing, there's a frustration there because he can see all of it. And uh, so so in verse 17, when it says his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Right. That's taken from Psalms 69 and they're applying it to Jesus and they're saying he has a zeal for God's house. And the reason he does is because he knows all the things that people are trying to put in God's place will never measure up. And it's frustrating. He has such a zeal that says, no, 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 you need this above all else. It's the same reason. When we read Ten Commandments and it says, you'll have no other gods before me because I, your God, am a jealous God. And people go, ooh, jealous God. I don't, I don't want to hear that. Right? We don't like that. Especially today. Try that out sometime. If there's somebody, you know, a non-Christian friend, just say, God's jealous. And they'll be like, what? I don't want, why would you want a God that's jealous? And they get real kind of, well, wait a second, what does that mean? But I want you to think about what it means and why he has a zeal for his father's house. Why God says, I want you to worship me and put me first. And the reality is, is this. God is better than anything else. He's perfect. He's perfect love. He's perfect justice. He's perfect holiness. All of it. If he didn't say, you need to be about me above all else, it would not be loving. You see that? And it's the same thing with God's anger towards things that we put in his place. If he just let us go off into those things and didn't say, oh, wait, wait a second, that's not what's best for you, that would not be loving. Because he'd be letting us settle for things that are less than his best. And that is so hard for us in our finite minds to get around because it goes back to the same thing. We start to put what I'm like on God. Well, if we talk about jealousy of a person, it's petty and it's different things that we get jealous about and we're not perfect and it's not. That doesn't work with God. Because he is absolute perfection. And if he didn't do that, it wouldn't be loving. Give me an example. If I go, uh, if I go out to eat 
with my wife and we're sitting there. And let's say it's our anniversary and we go to a nice restaurant and she orders one thing and I order something else. And I say, hey, how, how is yours? The food comes and she says, oh, it's okay. You know, I'm a little disappointed it's not that great. And then you taste yours and it's the best food you've ever tasted. And it's wonderful. You have a decision. Am I going to tell her that this is the best thing I've ever tasted? Or am I going to go, yeah, mine's not that good either, and then eat it real fast, right? The loving thing to do would be able to say, this is the best thing I've ever tasted. You need to, I need to share this with you, right? That's, that's what God's saying. When God says, I'm a jealous God and I'm above all else, basically what I'm saying, what he's saying is, I am the best there is. This is it. And now if anything or anyone, any other person says that, they're obnoxious and they're arrogant and because it's not true. But when God says it, it's true. So therefore it's loving because he is the best thing there is. So for him to say, I'm jealous and I want you to be about me above all else, it's the most loving thing he can do. So you see that when Jesus comes in and they're putting things in his place, they're putting things that point to God and are supposed to show you who God is and they're messing it all up and he sees the hearts behind it, it is so frustrating. His holy anger burns against the things that are not right. And that's how he acts and reacts. And that's the first part of his response, but there's a second part of his response too because they do this, this uh, ploy to, to re-divert him. Give us a sign. And Jesus does say something to that. It's in verse 19. He answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And that's his sign. <laughs> what? <laughs> that's basically what they said, huh? You're going to do what? It took 46 years to build this. You're going to tear it down in three days. You're going to build it again. And now what John does for us, and we can see this because we're outside of Scripture. We're not in the moment there. But what John does for us is he says, he kind of steps out and looks from up here. And he says, well, wait a second. Let me explain that to you. So if somebody's reading the Bible for the first time, John tries to help us out a little. And in verse 21, he says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So what he's saying is um, he walks into the temple and he starts doing these things and he starts correcting the wrongs and he's frustrated and he's angry. And they say, who are you to do this and what's what's going on and what what sign will you give us? And what Jesus is saying is all this stuff that you're making it about, you're making it about religion and temple and sacrifices and money. He said, all of this points to me. That's what he's saying. This temple, I'm going to destroy it and I'm going to raise it up in three days. He's talking about my body. When Jesus does that, of course, he's talking about the resurrection, his death and his resurrection. When he does that, he replaces the temple. He becomes the high priest. He becomes the temple. He becomes all of it. And that's what he's saying. All the things, the way he responds is all these things you're making about, all these things that you're looking at really point to me. That's his response. Now, I didn't see that quite then, and not even his disciples saw that then, but we have the advantage of being outside of Scripture and be able to, being able to see what he's saying. All of this points to me. All this stuff that has captured your hearts, all these things that are making it where you're missing it, even the people who are seeing signs and wonders. I want you to think about that for just a second, what that means. The signs and wonders. When they go and they're saying, well, they believed in Jesus because he did this miracle. And they go, oh, yeah, now I'll follow him. Right. I'll come to Jesus because he can heal the sick. I'm, I've got a sick relative. I'll, now I'll go to Jesus. You're using Jesus when you see him that way. I'm going to come to you because of what you can do for me, not for who he is. Do you see the difference? 
And that's what Jesus is saying because he saw right through their hearts and exactly who they are. You're trying to come. So his answer here is just just as applicable to them as it is to the Pharisees. All the stuff, all the signs and wonders and all those things are to point you to me. That's what he's saying. It's to make you see who I am and what I came to do. And that's the second part of his answer. He's saying it all points to me. So what about us today? What do we take away from this passage when we look at it today? What does it speak to us? It tells us about who God is and what he's doing, but um, it also tells us a lot about who we are. And the first thing I want you to, to consider this morning is that God knows everything about you. He sees your heart. He sees your intentions. He sees why you do what you do. There's no fooling him. Right? If you come to church maybe once a month and you go, ah, oh, come so God will be happy with me. God knows that you're thinking, I'll come to church so that he'll be happy with me. And that does not make him happy. You see that? He sees right through you to who you are. The second part of that, and the second thing I want us to see, is that apart from Jesus Christ, when we're that way, oh, maybe I'll just trick him. I'll do this. Or I'll go volunteer over here and then I'll feel better about myself and then God will be good with me. No, that doesn't work. Because what that does is you're doing and trying to manipulate and you're trying to use them just like the people that were coming for miracles. I'll come and I'll do this and I'll do that. And then, but Jesus sees their hearts and he sees through. So if you just left it at those two, this is really depressing. Because what it says is he sees right through who you are to your heart and he sees all of it. But there's one last part of this and we're going to end with this this morning. Is that Jesus says right in the middle is you want a sign of why I can do this and why I can point out these shortfalls and why I can do that. My sign is I have come to lay my life down for you. That's the answer. Because he doesn't leave us with just I can see through you. And you're all messed up and you're not fooling me. Now, try harder, right? If Jesus came and said, here's, here's the Ten Commandments and here's the Sermon on the Mount, go do it. And if you do it well enough, I'll let you in. We'd all be hopelessly lost, but that's not what he says. He says, I came to late. That's what he's saying there in verse 19. Destroy this temple, talking about his body, and in three days I will raise it up because I came to do for you what you can't do. Right? God's holy Anger, his holy frustration, his holy wrath rests on sin because we're, we're exchanging the truth of God for a lie. We're putting things in his place. And Jesus says the answer to that is you can't fix it. I fix it for you. You give it up and you say, Lord, I can't fix it. I know I can't fix it. You have to do it for me. And that's what Jesus is saying. Right? That's what he's telling us here. That's the third part. It's the truth that that in itself, that's the truth of the gospel. We are uh, more sinful than you ever dared imagine, but he is more loving than you ever dared hope. That he came to do it for you because you can't. And when you get that, it's the most freeing, wonderful thing you can ever come across because all your frustrations and all your failures and all these things and all your guilt, he says, I'll take it. I'll take all of it. I'll take all the wrath and all the anger and all those things and I will put it away from you and you get me. And that's what he was saying, standing in the middle of the temple. Forget about all this other stuff. It all points to me and what I came to do for you. 
See how huge that is. That Jesus came to do what we couldn't do. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. I hope you get that. I hope you realize this morning that the God of the universe came down to us to make that known, to lay his life down, it's a terrible ending, but <laughs> sorry, that's the way I, sometimes I get bad on the ending part, to be honest, because I get so, but that, that's the truth of it, that's the beauty of it, that it's, that it's not just I know you and I see through you and now, oh well, it's I know you and I see through you and I came to fix it for you. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the beauty of the gospel message. We thank you that you came to us. That you didn't leave us uh, to ourselves. You didn't uh, just give us some rules to follow, but that you stepped into the story so that you could show us the truth, that you could walk among us, but then most of all, that you were willing to come and do what we could never, ever do that you were willing to lay your life down and take our place. Uh, we thank you. Thank you for that. And we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. If you look.